You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our gracious Father, we, it is our prayer that you would guide us into truth and show us your ways in Scripture. And we are so thankful that you give us your word, that it is a clear revelation of you and of your will for us. And we thank you that we have it in our own language before us and so abundantly that we can each have a copy sitting in our laps. And we thank you that you have provided this for us and that you have opened our eyes to the truth. And it is our desire that you would continue to do that and that you would Give us your spirit to illuminate us in the text of Scripture this morning. May you be glorified in our study of the truth, and we pray that you would confirm our hearts in the truth, that we may be children of the truth and that we may obey it. We love you, and we thank you for these precious promises contained in Scripture, and we pray that you would open our eyes to them this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are drawing very near to the end of this farewell discourse in John chapter 16, and Lord willing, this Sunday and next Sunday, and we will be done with the 16th chapter, and then we're going to start that monumental chapter 17. I don't even want to predict how long it's going to take us to work our way through chapter 17, but it is, I think, one of the richest chapters in all of Scripture. Uh, But in the meantime, we are coming to the end of chapter 16, and this entire Upper Room Discourse has been filled with a lot of precious promises and rich truths, and I hope that you have enjoyed it as much as I have since we started chapter 13 and 14, 15, and now 16. You have no choice but to sit through it because I preach what I preach and you show up and you sit here. But at least I hope that in sitting through it, you have enjoyed mining the riches of this upper room discourse. This is the longest discourse in all of John's gospel. And the only thing that comes close to this length of teaching anywhere is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In Matthew's, in the Sermon on the Mount, that was sort of preached to a a mixed crowd, as it were, believers and unbelievers that were there. But this discourse is, is, it's very intimate. It's very personal. It's the 11 believing disciples and Judas is gone and it's just Jesus with his disciples on the night before he, uh, he was crucified uh, during the final hours of his life with them. And so it's much more personal and, and it's much more applicable or relevant to us specifically as believers in our context. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure from them. And so he's giving them all of these precious promises and we've been looking at a few of them. John's gospel is very unique in the material that John includes in his gospel as well as the the perspective that John brings to the life of Jesus. The other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what we call the synoptic gospels. And in case that word is new to you, I just remind you of of what it means. Synoptic means to see the same. Syn, S-Y-N, meaning the same as in synonym, and optic, to see or to view something or sight. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they look at the life of Jesus from much the same perspective. Each one is a bit unique, and each one includes some material that is only unique to them. But for the most part, Matthew, Mark, and Luke view the the life and ministry of Jesus, all of this very similar material, and from much the same vantage point. John is entirely unique. When John picked up his pen, he seems intent to present to us a a view of the person of Christ that is completely unique from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He intends to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so John includes material and a perspective of Jesus that, though present in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is not emphasized in those Gospels. 
we can come to the same conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him we might have life in his name. We can come to that same conclusion through the synoptic gospels, but with John, he is he's zeroing in on one element of the life and the ministry of Jesus, namely his divinity and his relationship with the Father. And so he's very unique. And I, I keep going back in my mind time and again as we as we reach the, as we go through these unique passages in John of how much um, of how indebted we are to John for including the stuff that he did. How how much more on what the word I'm looking for. Uh, handicapped our understanding of Jesus would be without John. It would be very different. And it's not to suggest that it would be possible for John not to have been written. I'm not saying, boy, are we ever lucky that it turned out this way and we got John instead of the Gospel of Thomas. That's not at all my suggestion. But but we need to be reminded again and again of how much of a blessing this book is, and unique it is in the canon of Scripture. So as Jesus is drawing sort of this this. A time with his disciples to a conclusion, John chapter 16. He includes some promises at the end. Now, we're going to be looking at three promises. Today we're going to look at verses 23 through 28. Three promises in those verses that Jesus gives to those disciples. Each promise is intended to encourage them, to strengthen them, to edify them, and to sort of brace them up for the, what, the events that were late to come later that evening. And as we look at each of these three promises, one thing that we're going to see is that each of these three promises is something that Jesus had already given them earlier in this evening. So it not, this is not unique. This is Jesus drawing together, as it were, all of the, the essential elements of this upper room discourse, and he is just kind of giving it to them again in a bullet form and reminding them, this is what I said, this is what I said, just bring it to your attention again. So verses 23 to 33 is really the wrap-up, the conclusion of the upper room discourse, and we're looking at verses 23 to 28, three promises that Jesus gave to the disciples. The first, in verses 23 and 24, that is the promise of answered prayer. Read those verses together with me. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. The second promise is in verses 25 and 26, and it's the promise of a fuller understanding. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. And then the third promise is the promise of the Father's love, verses 27 and 28. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. So the promise of, of answered prayer, of fuller understanding of the Father's love. So let's look at the promise of answered prayer in verses 23 and 24. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Now, to what event or what time period is Jesus pointing when he says, in that day? What day is that? He seems to be pointing to something that was future to them at the time and saying that there was coming a day when they would no longer ask him for anything, but instead they would ask the Father for things in his name. They would no longer pray to the Son, the Lord Jesus. They would no longer speak to Him personally. But instead, they would ask the Father for things in His name. And the Father would grant them. What is that day? This actually goes back to what we covered last week when we discussed the, the, the issue of what is Jesus referring to when He says, again, you will see Me. You'll not see Me. And then, again, you will see Me. This future day, what is it? I think that the in that day is the same verse, the same day that's being described in verse 16 when Jesus is speaking of, again, a time coming when they would see him. And last week I gave you three options or three interpretations of that phrase and when those that event would be. 
It might be referring to his resurrection. You remember this? It might be referring to his second coming or it might be referring to the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I argued and suggested that the, the reference there is to the coming or the giving of the Holy Spirit. Not to the resurrection and not to his second coming, um, but to the giving of the Holy Spirit. And I think that that is what Jesus is describing here again. He is saying to them in that day, and he's speaking of the same day, when the Spirit would come in that day, they would no longer question him about anything. Now the disciples were used to questioning him. Read through the Gospels and what do you see? The, the disciples were constantly questioning him, asking him questions, asking him for things. And that was quite appropriate because he was the rabbi. He was their teacher. And so they would come to him with their questions, and he was his role was to teach, and their role was to follow and to learn. They were disciples, so they were learners. They were the ones who followed him, and they would ask him the questions, and he would give them the teaching. And that was appropriate. And we see this all the way through the life and ministry of Jesus. We even see it after the resurrection. In Acts chapter 1, it says, Luke says, to these, that is to the disciples, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, though it doesn't say that the disciples were asking about the kingdom of God, we can, we can well reason, I think it's not unjustified speculation to suggest that even after the resurrection, the disciples were asking him questions. In fact, we do see that. Do you know what the last recorded words of the disciples to Jesus were? A question. Is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Those are the last recorded words of the disciples to Jesus. They constantly asked him questions. And Jesus is saying, there is coming a day when you will no longer ask me any questions. When would that be? When he was no longer there and the Spirit of God came, then Jesus says, you will direct your prayers to the Father. And that is the pattern for prayer that is given. Look at verse 23. Truly I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Now, this is the biblical pattern of prayer that is laid out in the New Testament. We are not commanded or instructed or, or given a pattern to pray to the Son, nor are we commanded or instructed or given a pattern to pray to the Spirit, but to the Father. And this is the biblical pattern of prayer. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son through the agency or power or in the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of the God is the one who prompts this prayer. We're praying in the Spirit to the Father in the name of the Son. That's the biblical pattern. Now, that is not to say that it is sinful or wrong to pray to the Son or to pray to the Holy Spirit. It's just to say that the general pattern and expectation of the New Testament seems to be that we pray to the Father in the name of the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the biblical pattern. And, and I would suggest to you that if your praying and your prayer is you find it aimed to the Holy Spirit and you're praying to the Holy Spirit and that's what characterizes your prayer life, there's something unbiblical and unbalanced that is wrong. That's not the pattern. Likewise, if you are find that your prayer life is characterized by praying to Jesus and you are focusing all of your prayers to Him, that likewise is unbalanced and it is unbiblical. The biblical patterns we pray to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Just this last week, uh, I turned on Christian radio, which as a rule I have given up on Christian radio and I've given up on Christian music. I just Stuff comes out now in Christian music that I don't even listen to. As a general rule, I forget it. I would rather listen to, well, I listen to podcasts and sermons. I'm sick of music, sick of it, sick of Christian music, especially stuff that's produced today. Because as I turned on the Christian radio station, guess what it was? There was one song by some artist that I've never heard of, and because I don't listen to Christian music anymore, and the whole song was a prayer to the Holy Spirit. Praying to the Spirit about this, praying to the Spirit about that, asking the Spirit for this. That is unbalanced, and it is unbiblical. That is not the biblical pattern for prayer. The biblical pattern for prayer is that we pray to the Father in the name of the Son, and we do so in the agency of the Holy Spirit. 
any other pattern for prayer is unbiblical, if, it, if that's what characterizes your prayer life. Anything else that characterizes your prayer life is unbiblical. Now, that doesn't mean that it's unbiblical to pray to the Son. There are times when we do address certain prayers or certain language to the Son. That's appropriate. For instance, when we pray to God and I, and, and I thank Him for sending His Son into the world to die for my sins, I do not address that prayer to the Spirit or to the Son because that would be heretical. That, that prayer is addressed to the Father. Likewise, when I am thanking God for His gifts, His spiritual gifts or His empowerment or regeneration or the fact that He dwells within me, I address that type of language to the Spirit for it would be wrong for me to pray that to the Father. And when I pray to God and I thank Him for dying on the cross for my sins, and offering his life as an atonement for me, I don't address that to the Father. That's patripassionism, which is a heresy. Nor do I address that to the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross. But the second person did. That's biblical Trinitarian prayer. The pattern is we pray to the Father in granting our request in the name of the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. But when we are addressing God and we are describing things that are unique to a certain person of the Trinity, or his work for us, or his activity in us, we address the language to that specific person. But we always go back to this biblical pattern, which is to the Father. You got that? I think that a lot of times as Christians, we don't, we don't think Trinitarian, tri, we don't think in terms of the Trinity when we pray. I tried to make up a word, but I just couldn't make up a word on the fly. We don't think of the, of, in our prayer life and our language, we don't, we're not thinking as Trinitarians in our prayer. And we need to be careful to do that. So that when we are thanking God, we can address the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But, when we pray to the Spirit, what do we know that the Spirit does? He focuses our attention on whom? The Son. We saw that a couple weeks ago. So the Spirit wants us to focus on the Son. And when we focus on the Son, guess what He directs our attention to? You don't ask me for anything. You pray to the Father. That's even if you, no matter where you begin in the Trinity, you've got to go back to the Father eventually because that is the biblical pattern. All right, this promise of prayer, you'll see in verse 23, there is the promise that uh, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. If that promise sounds familiar, it's because we have already covered three other passages where a similar promise is given concerning answered prayer. Back in chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now see, there is Jesus describing what? Praying to him in his name and him answering prayer. So that is another example where the pattern is not, is, we're not prohibited from praying to Jesus, but the biblical pattern is the Father in the name of the Son. John chapter 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And when we covered those three passages, I suggested to you that praying in the name of Jesus is not a blank check. It's not a formula that we tack on the end of our prayers so that we might be, uh, so that we might leverage the blessings of God from His begrudging hand. And if we can ask whatever we want, uh, get whatever our hearts desire, anything that will satisfy our flesh or make us happy from our perspective, and all we have to do is ask for it in the name of Jesus, and God is somehow obligated to give it to us. That's not what asking in Jesus' name means. To ask in the name of the Son is to ask fully realizing that what I am asking is the will of the Son. This is what the Son wants for me. And this is in accordance with His plan. And so when I ask in His name, I am confessing that I believe that what I am asking for is God's will for me in Christ Jesus. And I'm asking that His name be glorified. I'm asking for His interests. I'm not seeking my own interests. I'm not seeking my own desires. But I'm seeking the advance of His kingdom, thinking of His kingdom first. And when I do that, I have this promise that if you ask what 
that if we ask what God wills and we ask the Father in the name of the Son, that we have whatever it is that He has, that He has promised to us when we simply ask Him for them. So what does it mean then when Jesus says in verse 24, until now you have asked for nothing in my name? The disciples had been asking Jesus for things and they had been asking the Father for things, but there was coming a time and it wasn't that far off when an an entirely new order would be inaugurated. From that point forward, the disciples would no longer ask Jesus specifically for these things and they would no longer just come to the Father uh, at His direction, but instead they would pray to the Father through the mediating work of the Son, asking the Father for things in His name. Up until this point, they had not asked for anything in Jesus' name because they didn't understand what the death of Christ would do for their prayer life and and the mediation of their prayers to the Father. So they didn't have any concept of the, the mediating work of Jesus, that He is the one mediator between God and man. And that He is the one who sits at God's right hand interceding for us and that we ask in His name. They they didn't understand that. They believed in Him as their Messiah, as the King of Israel. They had trusted Him as their friend. They had learned from them, from Him as their rabbi. But up until this point, they had no idea of His mediating work and what that would mean. All that is, all that is taught in the book of Hebrews, the disciples were oblivious to that. And He is simply saying to them, there is coming a point when you've never, you've never done this before. You've never asked the Father for anything in my name. But there's coming a day when you are going to approach the Father and you're going to do so in my name. Up until now you have asked for nothing in my name, but there's coming a day when you will ask the Father in my name and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. They had asked for nothing in the name of the Son, but there's coming a day when they would ask the Father in the name of the Son and they will receive. And I want you to notice that this promise of answered prayer is given twice. (laughs) Once at the end of verse 23, he will give it to you. And once at the end of verse 24, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. What is the purpose, or what is the blessing, I should say, of answered prayer to us? That our joy is made full. That we receive the joy of that. When we ask the Father, in the name of the Son, for something that is dear to the heart of the Father, and He willingly and gladly grants it to us, and we have the prayer answered, that thrills us, does it not? It thrills us to know that that our prayer was heard by the Father and that He answered that prayer and that He cared enough to answer that prayer. It thrills our hearts to know that we have had some part, however small, in the advancement of His kingdom when we pray for something with perseverance and God grants it. And then it thrills us and our joy is made full because in answered prayer we realize the Father is interested and He hears us and He has committed to us this task of prayer so that when we pray and it is answered, we're filled with joy and our, our joy overflows. Answered prayer has a way of filling our hearts with joy, and and that's what Jesus is saying. Um, Our our hearts rejoice in a Father who answers our prayers and loves to answer our prayers. And so I would suggest to you, I know that this is the case with me, that I don't think we pray enough. And even when we pray, this is the case with me, this is my own confession, I don't think we believe enough that our prayers are going to be answered. And I just look at Jesus' high view of prayer. This is not the only place he's promised this. He promised this elsewhere in this discourse. He, he said in the Gospel of Matthew, Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. This is his promise to us. Ask. Why is it that we have? Uh, have not? James reminds us in James chapter 4, verse 2, that we have not because we ask not. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. How many of God's richest blessings... Do we leave on the table, as it were, because we are just too hesitant to simply ask God for things that might please Him and delight His heart? 
And I'm not talking about, oh, I'm going to ask for a Maserati or I'm going to ask for a beachfront house or I'm going to ask for a Hawaiian vacation. That's not the type of things that I'm talking about. But the type of things that we know God wants to do and that we know God is interested in doing. So we might see the blessing of God poured out upon his people and upon his church and upon his kingdom and the advance of the word of God so that God might be glorified through those things and then our hearts are filled with joy and all of that happens because we just simply ask. And so when we ask, we ought to also pray and not ask with, for the wrong things or ask for the wrong motives because the promise, the expectation is that when we ask, we ask for the right things, the things that God wants to grant to us, the things that are for the good of his people, not our own selfish interests, and that we ask with right motives, and when we ask for the right things, with the right motives that advance his kingdom, God is delighted to answer those requests. James 4, verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. So let us ask. Let us ask. The second promise in John chapter 16, verses 25 and 26, is fuller understanding. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. The word figurative there is kind of a unique word. It's only used five times in the New Testament. Um, Sometimes people think of it as a parable, but it's not the word that is usually translated as parable. It refers to an enigmatic statement, a cryptic saying, a mysterious statement where the, the meaning is not obvious on the surface of it, but you've got to diligently study and think it through. And, and when you do so, kind of the, the meaning becomes clear. We've seen some of those in the Gospel of John, haven't we? And some people think that by figurative language, what Jesus is referring to is the illustration that he gave them back in verse 21 when he says, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Remember that analogy or illustration we looked at last week? Some suggest that that's what Jesus is talking about by figurative language. An analogy like that or that analogy. I would suggest to you that probably what is in view here is not just that figure of speech or that cryptic saying, but many things that are contained in this entire upper room discourse. Remember back in the beginning of chapter 14? I go to the Father's house to prepare a room or a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not, so I would have told you. Well, that's kind of clear to us, but it would make you scratch your head if you're one of the disciples. At that, at that point, Father's house? You're going to the Father's house? Where is this house? Is it a literal house? Is it a figurative house? It is a special house? How big is this house? How many rooms are in this house? What does this house look like? Or am I thinking of the house entirely wrong? See, that, that type of cryptic or enigmatic language that characterizes really this whole upper room discourse. Remember back in chapter 14, verse 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, and one of the disciples wanted to know, what way is it that you're going? No, I am the way. What do you mean by I am the way? That's a figurative or cryptic saying. Chapter 14, verse 20, when Jesus said, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What? See that? I mean, that would have been totally unclear to the disciples. How about the vine and branches analogy? How many... How many dozens of weeks did we spend laboring through that to get that right? That's something that wouldn't have been readily apparent to them, but probably years later or months later would have, wow, that I see the meaning of that now. There's all kinds of cryptic language, even in the rest of the Gospel of John. Things that were not, that happened, the things that Jesus said that were not apparent to the disciples as far as the, the intended meaning of it until much, much later. Remember back in chapter 2 when Jesus cleansed the temple? And they said to him, what authority do you have to do this? He said, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. And the Jews thought he was speaking of the physical temple. And what was Jesus speaking of? John said he was speaking of the temple of his body. And it wasn't until after Jesus rose from the dead that the disciples said, now we got it. We get that. John chapter 12, when he rode into the city of Jerusalem on the colt, the foal of a donkey. 
And John says it wasn't until after Jesus was risen that the disciples understood the significance of these things. Often Jesus' language was couched and his truths were couched in, in, in enigmatic or mysterious sayings. And Jesus is saying, my life has been characterized and much of my teaching and events have been characterized by these things which are hidden to you now, but there is coming a day when all of these things will become clearer. For the Spirit, the resonant truth teacher, He will dwell in you and He will bring to remembrance all that I said to you. We saw that back in chapter 14, verse 26. And those, then those things would become clear. Now, not everything Jesus said was mysterious and enigmatic. It's not like reading through one of the one of the apocryphal or pseudepigraphal gospels like Thomas or Barnabas or one of those Gnostic nonsense gospels where you read it and scratch your head and nothing is clear because much of what Jesus said was clear. But there were times when he gave truth in cryptic or ambiguous, not ambiguous, that's the wrong word, uh, a cryptic or figurative language for the sake of hiding truth. And this was an act of judgment, of course, to unbelievers who willfully rejected the truth. And it was an act of grace to the disciples to hide those truths until the appropriate time when the Spirit of God would make their meaning clear. And that's what he's saying in verse 25. Now look at verse 26. In that day, that is the day that the Spirit comes, the day that that He comes and you no longer ask it me and you, you ask the Father in my name, in that day when the Spirit comes to indwell you and you understand these things plainly and through the ministry of the Spirit, Jesus reveals the plain truths of God to the disciples. In that day, verse 26, you will ask in my name and I do not say to you, that I will request of the Father on your behalf. Now, verse 26 seems to be a clarification uh, from Jesus by what he means when he says, I will not, I'm, I do not say to you that I will ask of the Father on your behalf. He's clarifying what it means to ask in his name. So, when we ask in the name of Christ, we are not suggesting or thinking that we have to ask Jesus and then Jesus asks the Father. We don't approach God through emissaries or intermediaries or or those type of levels of mediation. And Jesus is saying, you're asking in my name, but I'm not saying to you what what I don't mean by that, that I ask the Father on your behalf. You ask me, and then I ask the Father. Lord Jesus, I need this. So can you see if you can ask the Father and see if the Father would grant this? Because maybe it would sound better if it came from you instead of from me. That's not the That's not the meaning of it. Because Jesus says in verse 27, the Father himself loves you. He's describing direct access to the Father. By asking in Jesus' name, we are not suggesting that we ask Jesus, and then he asks the Father. Now, if you're familiar with Roman Catholic doctrine, then you know that in many ways this is very similar to what Roman Catholics teach in terms of that we don't have direct access to the Father. Now, it's not to say that every Roman Catholic believes this, okay? It's not a blanket statement, but Roman Catholic doctrine or teaching is that God himself is, is angry and he is begrudging And he cannot be approached directly. And so we have to approach him through mediators. And who are those mediators? They are the saints and they are Mary. And there are Catholic writings and Catholic teachings. And and the teaching of the Catholic Church is that we approach Mary and we pray to Mary. And Mary asks Jesus. You know why Mary has to ask Jesus? Because Jesus can't refuse his mother. He sees his mother. And of course, if the request comes from Mary, listen, if you can get Mary to ask Jesus on your behalf, cha-ching you know that she is going to be able to leverage that out of God's begrudging hand. That's kind of the idea behind Roman Catholic teaching, which is why they suggest you have to have all of these mediators who approach God on our behalf rather than one mediator who is the man Christ Jesus. This direct access to the Father is what Jesus is describing in this passage. We not only have the promise of answered prayer, but this fuller understanding and this direct access to the Father. The book of Hebrews describes it. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Whose throne of grace do we draw near to? We draw near to the Father's throne of grace, knowing that we have a high priest there who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses. He understands our temptations. He understands our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted as we are. Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's the direct access. John Calvin, in preaching upon this passage, he said this, When Christ is said to intercede with the Father for us, let us not imagine anything fleshly about him, as if he were on his knees before the Father, offering humble supplications. But the power of his sacrifice, by which he once pacified God toward us, is always powerful and efficacious. The blood by which he atoned for our sins The obedience which he rendered is a continual intercession for us. This is a remarkable passage by which we are taught that we have the heart of God as soon as we place before him the name of his son, end quote. That's what's being described. When we ask something in the name of the son, we are not to think that Jesus is up there taking each one of our requests and giving them back to the father, trying to leverage the blessings from God's hand, but rather that we come to him through the mediating work of Christ, which means that the access to the father directly has been granted to us by the son. So when we ask in the name of the Son, we are coming to the Father and saying, Father, because of what the Son has done, I can come into your presence. And based on no other work of mine, based on no merit of my own, I cannot come into this throne room. I cannot request anything. I have no right to stand before God and ask Him for anything except because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's what it means to ask in the name of the Son. Now the third promise, not only answered prayer, And fuller understanding, the third promise, the promise of the Father's love. Look at verse 27. The Son does not ask for us, for, verse 27, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and believed that I came forth from the Father. The Father himself loves you. Now that is one of those truths that I think we are well served to remember time and time again, and to go back to time and time again. We all sing God loves us. We sang about the love of God for us this morning in our worship. But do we really think about that that is the Father himself that loves us? I was reflecting upon this this morning. And it occurred to me, we we often think of the Son's love. We think of the love of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we see the pictures of him with the children, bouncing the children on his knee and and things like that. But we also reflect upon the love of the Son. and, And it is apparent that the Son loves us because he gave himself for us on a cross because of what he suffered, because he died, because he came here and he suffered the humiliation from sinners and did all of that on our behalf, that is an evidence of his love. But sometimes we are negligent to think or really realize the love of the Father and of the Spirit. Do you realize that the Holy Spirit loves you? And do you realize that the love of the Holy Spirit is the same love and equal love to the love of the Son for you? Do you ever realize that? We we often don't think of that. We think of the love of the Son, but we don't have to think of the love of the Holy Spirit because the idea of indwelling us and empowering us and giving us life. These are not things that, that that we connect with His love for us, but it is true that He loves us. And it is equally true that the Father loves us. Oftentimes, as, as even as Christians, we think that the Father's attitude toward us is one of wrath because we realize the Son came to save us from the wrath of the Father. 
But do you understand that it was the love of the Father for us that sent the Son into the world to save us from His wrath? Because the Father has loved us? Do you understand the triune God has an, a love for us? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It's not like any one of them was, is begrudging in His gifts toward us or begrudging in salvation. And none of them, none of the three persons had to be coaxed by any of the other persons of the Trinity into putting into place this plan of redemption. It was the love of God, the love of the Father, the love of the Son, the love of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, you have access to the Father because the Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you. And this is repeated elsewhere in this upper room discourse as well. John 14, verse 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John 14:23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him promise of the love of the Father. Why does the Father love us? Don't misunderstand the end of verse 27 when Jesus says, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me. And, and it would be wrong for us to think that it is our love that was prior to the love of the Father for us. Because you could read that that way and understand it that way, but it can't possibly mean that because 1 John 4.19 says he, we love him because he first loved us. So God's love for us was prior to that. It's not that our love for the Son merits the love of the Father, but rather we love the Son and the Father loves the Son and the heart of the Father is knit to us because we both love the same object, which is the Son. And in loving the Son, the Father loves us. Whose love came first? Our love for God or God's love for us? God's love for us came prior to our love for God. I could not and I would not ever have loved either the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit without first God loving us. So why is it that I love God? Only because He loved me first. And He came and He drew me to Himself and He changed my heart and He gave me a new heart and new affections and He caused me to be born again and He gave me in my heart a love for the Son. And that love for the Son is an expression of the Father's love for me. So why do I love the Son? Because the Father first loved me. And why does the Father love me? Because I love the Son. My love for the Son is evidence that the Father loves me. For if I had no love for the Son, it would be evidence that I have no heart or desire or salvation at all. But my love for the Son is evidence of my salvation. My salvation is evidence of the love of the Father for me. So we are promised answered prayer. We are promised a fulfilled, a fuller understanding. And we are promised the love of the Father. And verse 28 kind of brings us back to where we started this uh, upper room discourse in chapter 14, verse 1. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. And that's how Jesus started this upper room discourse. I'm going to the Father. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself. So everything Jesus said has come to pass. Just as he told them, he went to the Father, just as he told them he was going to the Father. And he will come again, just as he has promised that he will come again. I hope that day comes quickly. hope it comes quickly. Let me leave you with two thoughts, two thoughts about this passage. First, our understanding of the love of God has to affect our prayers. I think it is appropriate for us and probably helpful for us if we were to meditate or really think upon the love of the Father for us while we're praying and before we pray, if we just spend some time reflecting upon that truth that the triune God has a love for us, so when I come to the Father, I'm not coming to Him as one who is, is begrudging in His in His gifts to me or His is 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 uh, not wanting to give me anything. I come to one who loves me, and not only does He love me, but the one in whose stead I come and by whose merit I come, He loves me, and I come in the power of the Spirit who also loves me. And to reflect upon that, I think would would help settle our attitude in prayer and our heart in prayer to reflect upon the love of God in the time of my prayer. 
So that my prayer is not seen as me trying to leverage a blessing from God's hand in some way, but me coming to one who, who loves me and wishes to bestow upon me every blessing, every blessing and every good thing for me in all things. And second, if the Father loves us like this, like is described here, then what must our entrance into heaven look like when we go there? Right? Step into the Father's palace. You think he's going to say, ah, another room, another room gone to you. No, but our entrance into heaven is going to be stepping into the palace of one who loves us with an infinite love. That is why I think the psalmist says that we read this morning, Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. When we go to heaven, we are stepping into the palace of one who is eager to see us and who is eager to share his joy and his glory and the delights of eternity with us. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are so thankful for your promises in Scripture. You have been good to us beyond description, certainly and infinitely beyond what we deserve that you would give to us uh, even the forgiveness of sins is a gift unimaginable, and yet you have added to that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and we get eternity with you, and we get the righteousness of Christ, and the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We thank you for all of these things. So many precious promises here that we have looked at this morning, and we pray that we would reflect upon these things and be mindful of these things even while we pray. Help us to pray intentionally and purposefully and with the expectation that you will grant to us those things which are in accordance with your will which we ask in the name of your Son. We can only come to you because of what he has done, and so we approach you in his merits and his stead, thanking you for the access that we have, unfettered and unhindered, to your throne of grace each and every day. Let's not take that for granted, and we pray that you would keep us from doing so. And may our hearts be inclined to you by your truth and through your word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.